baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. I'm Heather Vale, and this is the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. Joining me is Kim Small, CEO of Signs of Hope, which stands for Healing, Options, Prevention, and Education. January is Human Trafficking Awareness Month, and the Southern Nevada Human Trafficking Task Force chose the local organization and their RISE program to receive financial support from the Las Vegas Super Bowl host committee charities and the NFL. And Signs of Hope recommended for other nonprofits to get funding as well. Kim, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Heather, for having me. So what exactly is Signs of Hope? So Signs of Hope is <laughs> what you said. We are an organization that offers hope, help, and healing to those that have been affected by sexual violence, as well as human trafficking. And human trafficking consists of both sexual trafficking as well as labor trafficking. We are an organization that provides 24-7 hotline services to those that are in need of our help. We have a great partnership with UMC. So if there is a victim that is in need of accompaniment, we are there to provide support. We also have a great relationship with VICE, with Metro, where we're called out to provide resources to victims of human trafficking. And those resources consist of not only what we offer, but those services that our partners on the task force offer, which could be housing, it could be transportation and food. We also have an awesome counseling center here on site with counselors, both bilingual and as well as English speaking, that offer services to those that are in need of our support. And the support could come the day after, or it could come 60 years later. Whatever the case may be, we're here to provide the support. It's individual counseling, it's telehealth, as well as support groups for our, our clients. In addition, we have advocates that are able to provide case management for our clients and help them with either legal issues or provide court accompaniment as they navigate the justice system, as well as prevention and education and outreach. So we do a lot with the community and educating those on rape as well as human trafficking. So we provide a multitude of wraparound services for victims and survivors. Yeah, that's absolutely a lot of services that you just mentioned. So when was Signs of Hope first founded as an organization? I'm glad you asked because we're coming up on our 50th year, 1974. Wow. Signs of Hope was founded by our founders, Florence McClure and Sandra Pettit. And they started in Florence's house providing services because she felt that there was a need. She saw a need to provide resources and support to those rape victims. 
And so we started as Community Action Against Rape back in 1974. We then changed our name to the Rape Crisis Center. And now we're Signs of Hope because we've added on our human trafficking department, our program. And so Signs of Hope encompasses not just rape victims, but also those that have been impacted by human trafficking. How prevalent is human trafficking here? So contrary to popular belief, it is here in Las Vegas. It's in Clark County. It is very prevalent. Also, the myth that it's happening on the Strip, it is a myth. It it happens everywhere in this valley, and it could be happening next door to you. It is very, very prevalent because of just the big events that we host here in Las Vegas. You know, it's the entertainment mecca. And everyone wants to come to Vegas with the idea of what happens here stays here, but it doesn't. It follows you. And we are attractive to a lot of people. And I understand why, because it's a great, great town. And there's a lot of wonderful activities and attractions here. And there are a lot of big Uh, events that happen here in Vegas and everyone wants to host here. And so it brings, unfortunately, elements that we don't want to see. In addition to bringing those elements, they're here. They're here on an everyday basis. So it is really prevalent here in the Valley. Wow. Okay. So then what exactly is the RISE program, which is receiving some of the funding from the Las Vegas Super Bowl host committee charities? So the RISE program offers the resources and support to those human trafficking survivors and victims. As I mentioned, we work very closely with Metro. So we work with them on a daily basis. They call us out 24-7 to respond to victims of human trafficking. So we can provide, if wanted, housing or transportation or food or resources to those victims. If, again, if wanted. In addition, the RISE program has a hotline that's manned 24-7. They also have advocates that work with clients as they exit that life to provide them the support and help them with the necessary resources like housing and education and job placement. So the RISE program is strictly focused on human trafficking. Okay. Now, you said if wanted... So why would victims not want support and resources? Some victims don't see themselves as victims. Some of them are in the life and they don't see themselves as victims or they're too afraid to exit the life. And so they're just not ready. Unfortunately, we see this happening a lot. Or on the labor trafficking side, sometimes they're identifications or are being held or they're being forced to work crazy hours and they're just not ready or they're too scared to exit the life. Okay. So how did Signs of Hope and the RISE program get involved with the Las Vegas Super Bowl host committee charities and the NFL? 
So this opportunity came about through our partnership with Metro and we applied for the funding and were able to receive it. And we were able to bring along four other nonprofits that support us all year round, but one in particular that's focused on big Super Bowl events. And it's it's called It's a Penalty. So we were encouraged to apply. We did, and we received the funding. And we, like I said, we were able to extend the funding to our partners. What are some of the other partners that you recommended to receive funding? We recommended the Embracing Project, which we work with on a daily basis. We recommended St. Jude's Ranch, as well as Be a Shiro. Now, these are three organizations here in the Valley that work with victims of human trafficking and provide shelter and job placement and education. And they also work with youth that are being sexually trafficked. So it was important to us because we're seeing an uptick in the number of youth that are being sexually trafficked, that we bring along those partners to help. And as well as it's a penalty because they can get the word out on a larger scale and about the services that we offer, not just Signs of Hope, but our partners as well offer to those victims in the community. Okay. Now, since it's the Las Vegas Super Bowl host committee charities and the NFL that provided the funding, what will this relationship look like next month during the Super Bowl? Are we going to see signs of hope all over the place, logo? What do we see? So this is part of our relationship with It's a Penalty. You'll see the advertisement around the valley with the Signs of Hope hotline number that those that see something can say something they can call if they have tips or if there are victims that are in need of our services they can reach out to us so you will see billboards around the valley but mostly it is a lot of educating the community on what to look for and how to respond and educating them on the resources available if they should need it. So you won't see us plastered everywhere. I I would love to see that, not just during the Super Bowl, but on a daily basis. But you'll see our hotline on some of the billboards around the Valley. Now, we also provide our hotline number to the community and to casinos and to Metro and to schools on a daily basis as well, if they should ever need us. And actually, it should start this month. You should see the the billboards go up. Nice. Okay. Now, since this is Human Trafficking Awareness Month, what's the one thing you want the community to know about human trafficking? That it's not just on the Strip. It isn't. It's in your neighborhoods. It's in your community. And it doesn't look what you may think it looks like. Being aware and and reaching out to us to ask questions and to get more educated on what this looks like so that if you come across this or you come in contact with a victim, you can provide help safely. But also, if you have a tip, you can reach out to us. But it's not just on the strip, as some people might think. It, It lives all throughout the valley. Okay. That's very sad news. 
but I'm glad that you're bringing it to our awareness since it is Human Trafficking Awareness Month. So now, where could listeners go if they want to find out more information about Signs of Hope, whether it's someone who needs to access services or whether it's a listener who just wants to find out more about what you do, maybe even help and get involved in some way? They can visit our website, sohlv.org, sohlv.org, signsofhopelasvegas.org. And they can get more information. They can also apply to be volunteers, as well as see our hotline numbers listed for our sexual assault side and our human trafficking side. So that website, sohlv.org, provides all of the information needed. Perfect. Okay. So once again, the website is sohlv.org, stands for Signs of Hope, Las Vegas, sohlv.org. You can find out more about what they do with sexual assault victims as well as human trafficking victims. If you know someone who needs services, you can direct them there or provide a hotline. All of that's listed on the website. And if you want to get involved either as a volunteer, making a donation, you can do that there as well, sohlv.org. And look for more next month during Las Vegas Super Bowl as the Las Vegas Super Bowl host committee charities will be spotlighting Signs of Hope and their partner nonprofits. And Kim, I really want to thank you so much for being here. First of all, letting us know more about what you do in the community and the need for your services and also helping to shine spotlight on some of the other nonprofits that you identified to be supported by the Super Bowl host committee charities as well. So I really appreciate you being here today and sharing. Thank you so much. Thank you, Heather. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I appreciate the time to share I mean, we need everyone's help, so it takes a village, but thank you so much. After I lost my mom, I lost my way. Then I found youth advocate programs, yeah, behavioral health services. As a little kid, I made some mistakes, but I'm not a mistake. YAP gives communities alternatives to residential care, youth incarceration, and neighborhood violence. After completing our program, nearly 90% of participants remain in their community. YAP works. I'm working towards a bright future. Youth Advocate Programs. Others talk social change. We make it happen. Learn more at yapinc.org. This is the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. I'm Heather Vale, and I'm speaking with Dr. Craig Hirschberg, president of the American Association of Endodontists. Their recent survey shows that a third of adults never played sports because they were afraid of having a tooth knocked out. Dr. Hirschberg, thank you so much for being here today. Great to be here. Thanks, Heather. So why do so many people fear getting a tooth knocked out when they play sports? Well, we were a little surprised to learn that as well. I'm assuming that, you know, given the great value people put on their appearance, the thought of having a tooth knocked out might be, you know, more than some people can handle. So, Yeah. So a third of adults didn't play sports because they were afraid of that happening. Now, how often does it actually happen? Honestly, I don't have any data telling me how, you know, in the general population, how frequently a tooth is knocked out. How often do you experience it happening? Well, over the course of my 40 odd years as an endodontist, I mean, you have people that maybe once or twice a month would come in with uh, that type of injury. 
And I also oversee a clinic and a dental school where, yeah, I'd say probably uh, once or twice a week, we have usually a child that comes in after having a tooth knocked out. Okay. Now, what else did your latest survey reveal about people's fears around mouth injuries? Well, interesting enough that uh, we have a lot of probably around the same figure, you know, 30% of so, or so of adults that stated that they feared more having a tooth knocked out than breaking a bone or tearing a muscle playing sports. Huh. Interesting. Okay. Now, obviously you don't address the other bones in the body, but if we do get a tooth knocked out, what is the procedure that we should follow? Well, Time is of the essence if a tooth is knocked out. And the best thing that anybody could do if it's either their tooth or they're assisting somebody who's had a tooth knocked out to attempt to get that tooth back in the socket as soon as possible. So you don't wanna scrub the tooth or anything of that nature, pick the tooth up, maybe shake off debris if there's any clinging, take the tooth and place it right back in the socket. Sometimes that's not possible Sometimes, you know, it may be beyond the comfort zone of somebody. And if you're not putting it directly back into the socket, it's important that it's kept moist. The ideal thing to do would be to place it into a container of milk as cold as possible. Milk more closely resembles the environment of the body. It's uh, not too acidic. And from a chemical perspective, it, it would be the best material to place the tooth into. And then transport the tooth to the dentist, to the endodontist, to the emergency room, and let a professional place it back. And I also want to say that if there's fear that a patient has sustained a concussion, broken jaw, severe lacerations, obviously you're, you know, trying to get directly to someplace for emergency care, get that tooth into milk and get the patient where they have to go to get care. Okay. Now, if we can't put the tooth back in the socket and we've got the tooth in the container of milk, what do we do with the socket? Just leave it alone or do we need to put something in there to keep it fresh as well? No, the, uh, the socket is still, it's part of the body. It still has a blood supply and everything. And really what we're trying to do for the sake of the tooth is keep the cells that are on the surface of that root alive. If we're successful in doing that and we get the tooth back in the socket, ideally in half hour or so, we stand a good chance of the tooth reattaching. Also, the tooth's probably going to need root canal treatment too. So. so the tooth goes back in and then the root canal surgery is done. Well, it's not really a surgical procedure, but yeah, you know, ideally if a tooth has, unless it's a, a, a young child and it's not a mature tooth, the root canal treatment is usually ideally done within, say, a week, 10 days after the injury and after the tooth's been stabilized. Okay. Now, you mentioned dentists and endodontists, and you're an endodontist. What exactly is the difference? Well, an endodontist, after they've finished dental school, has gone back for a minimum of two years of additional training in advanced endodontic procedures, advanced pain control, there's a lot of technology that an endodontist would be using and their offices are set up in a manner where, you know, they're accustomed to accommodating patients on short notice 
if they've got a bad toothache or sustain some type of dental trauma. Okay, so general dentists for the cleaning and then endodontists for emergencies? I think you would be well served if you're having a dental emergency and seeing an endodontist, yes. Okay. Now, where could people go if they want to learn more about endodontists, if they want to find out more about the survey results, what to do if a tooth is knocked out, and that kind of information? Well, a great source of information would be to go to aae.org, and there's an entire section, an area on the website that uh, deals with patients' questions and has uh, educational materials. And in the event of a dental trauma or if somebody's having a toothache, you can go to findmyendodontist.com and there's a database to help patients refer themselves to an endodontist in their area. Nice. Okay. So aae.org is the website for the American Association of Endodontists. So aae.org, plenty of information there if you want to find out more. And then if you're looking for an endodontist, findmyendodontist.com will let you search for endodontists in your area. So findmyendodontist.com. And we've been speaking with Dr. Craig Hirschberg, president of the American Association of Endodontists. And Dr. Hirschberg, I want to thank you so much for being here and sharing some information with us and letting us know about the survey results. It's been fascinating. Thank you so much. Thank you, Heather. Staying active and healthy as we age starts with strong bones. To keep your bones strong, you need calcium, vitamin D, and regular exercise. A bone density test called DEXA helps detect low bone mass and bone disease called osteoporosis. If you're 65 or older, Medicare provides free bone density tests every two years. Ask your doctor to schedule yours. For more information on how to be bone strong, visit pathtogoodbonehealth.org. I'm Heather Vale, and this is the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. Joining me is Dr. Philip Adamson, Chief Medical Officer of Abbott's Heart Failure Division and heart failure survivor, Lakeisha Brown. Heart failure is the most frequent cause of hospitalization for Americans 65 and older, and it's responsible for almost 400,000 deaths a year in the U.S. Dr. Adamson and Lakeisha, thank you both so much for being here today. Thank you, and good morning. Yeah, thank you, Heather. So, Dr. Adamson, what exactly is heart failure? Well, Heather, heart failure develops when the heart really can't produce enough blood flow to meet the body's needs. And that produces a lot of different symptoms, including shortness of breath or exercise intolerance or fatigue. And you mentioned it, heart failure as a diagnosis leads to more deaths in people over the age of 65 than cancer. And so it's a very serious syndrome. And there are fortunately several treatments that can help relieve the symptoms and decrease this progression of the disease, but it is progressive. That means it gets worse over time, kind of naturally. And there are specific treatments for each stage of this disease. Okay. Now, why is heart failure sometimes misdiagnosed? Many of the symptoms are associated with other diseases, like if I feel short of breath or say I can't walk up a flight of stairs like I used to, I might think that I'm just getting older or out of shape. That kind of shortness of breath can be written off to other diseases. And in fact, when people are younger, 
doctors many times don't think of heart failure as something that they could be suffering with and other diseases like pneumonia or asthma or or just simply being out of shape can be thought of by even by doctors so the symptoms many times are not specific or very directed towards this diagnosis and other imaging tests and things have to be done to really get clarity of diagnosis Okay, so it's a frequent cause of hospitalization for older Americans, but you don't have to be older to have heart failure. You're absolutely right. Heart failure can happen to anybody. It can happen to children. It's just rarer, and it is more common in people who are older, but it can happen at any age in life. Lakeisha, what has your journey with heart failure been like? Well, initially, it was a shortness of breath that I was having. I attributed all of that, the symptoms that I was having, to stress, not realizing that um, it was something else going on with me because of my age. It wasn't until I went to see the first cardiologist that I saw and knew that heart failure was obviously a big thing and a big issue, but me having to be my own advocate and trying to find the right care for myself, because there were so many things I didn't know, so many questions I didn't know to ask. I didn't have the information. I do understand and know that people make decisions based on the information that they have, and I just didn't have the information to make a better informed decision. Yeah. You mentioned your age, Lakeisha. How old were you when diagnosed with heart failure? 41. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Now, Dr. Adamson, you mentioned that there are some treatments available. What are they? Well, Heather, we start with medications, and there are very specially designed medications that go into the heart to help it get stronger and to keep it from getting worse. And those medicines are incredibly important to use early in the disease. And in fact, time is of the essence here because every day, every week with heart failure, the heart gets worse if we don't intervene. And if the heart failure syndrome gets worse, and gets to the point like with Lakeisha where she was having shortness of breath at rest or the heart's unable to really pump blood to the body. We call that advanced heart failure and advanced heart failure requires very specific interventions like transplant, replacing the heart with a new one. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of hearts out there, but fortunately we have Abbott's HeartMate 3 device, which is a, an implantable pump that is put inside the heart that actually helps the heart pump blood out to the body. And those two interventions for advanced heart failure allow patients to re actually get their life back. They restores quality of life, increases the length of life, allows people to live comfortable lives outside the hospital. Incredibly important. And, but unfortunately, most people with heart failure don't receive even the medications that are, are life-saving in this, in this syndrome. So again, as Lakeisha mentioned, Patients really need to be their own advocate and understand what kinds of options there are for them at each stage of heart failure. Okay. So, Lakeisha, is it the HeartMate 3 device that you have? Yes, it is. And what kind of difference has that made to your well-being and your quality of life? After getting the Abbott HeartMate 3, I could tell the difference almost instantaneously. I was able to breathe freely. I wasn't uncomfortable anymore lying down. Walking across the room wasn't a challenge anymore for me. And I've been able to return to uh, the same things that I was doing prior to all this happening. I'm back in the gym, catering and cooking and spending time with my, my family and friends. So it's been really good. Wow, that's awesome. 
So, Dr. Adamson, does the journey start with our primary care provider? And after that, how far does it go? Do we need to find a heart failure specialist or what kind of doctor are we looking for if we suspect something like this or if our primary care physician suspects? Well, Heather, that's incredibly important, and your listeners really do need to understand that there are multiple people that will be involved in the journey of heart failure. Many times the first diagnosis happens either in the emergency department or with a primary care physician. Many times that then generates a referral to a heart specialist to understand the reversible causes of heart damage and heart dysfunction. And then as this disease progresses, it's incredibly important to be aware that there are cardiologists that are specially trained to treat advanced heart failure. So heart failure specialists are cardiologists that can deliver very high level care for people who suffer with this disease. All of those people are typically involved in the journey, but to remember patients need to remember that there are specialists that that's all they do is treat heart failure and provide care like Lakeisha had with the Abbott's HeartMate 3 device, providing that implant, supporting patients after that, using the right medications. So you hit on a very important piece that patients need to realize is that, you know, a cardiologist is specialized for very specific things in heart care. And there are heart failure specialists available to care for people with heart failure. Okay, perfect. So where could listeners go if they want to learn more about heart failure and the treatment options that are available? Well, there's multiple places that provide good information. One example would be domoreforheartfailure.com. So it's a website with, and that's all one word, domoreforheartfailure.com. Provides lots of information, other links to other credible places to get good information about heart failure. American Heart Association also provides information at aha.com or heart.com. So there are really good places to get information on the web. Doctors can, can certainly provide referrals and remember that there are advanced heart failure specialists that are cardiologists that are specifically trained to take care of this disease. Okay, perfect. So once again, those websites, aha.com or heart.com for the American Heart Association and do more for heartfailure.com. If you'd like to explore more about this topic, do more for heartfailure.com. And Dr. Adamson and Lakeisha, I want to thank you both so much for being here. Dr. Adamson, for letting us know more about heart failure and how serious it is and the various treatment options. And Lakeisha, for sharing your personal story with us. I really appreciate you both being here today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Heather. Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? Stop. That dog does not want to be petted. (laughs) A heads up before something bad happens. You should not send that text. Uh Uh-oh. Life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but prediabetes does. With early diagnosis and a few healthy changes, you can reverse prediabetes and prevent or delay type 2 diabetes. To learn your risk, take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. I'm Heather Vale, and this is the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. Joining me is Dr. Kenneth E. Thorpe, Chairman of the Partnership to Fight Chronic Disease and a professor and chair at Emory University. The FDA has recently approved new treatments that can slow the progression of Alzheimer's in the early stages of the disease, but access to these treatments is a different story. Dr. Thorpe, thank you so much for being here today. Well, thanks for having me on. 
So what is the partnership to fight chronic disease? Well, it's a not-for-profit coalition of about 80 organizations, uh, patient groups, business, labor, health plans, health insurance companies that are really focusing on three things, preventing the growth in chronic disease, finding ways for earlier detection of chronic disease, and finally, more effective ways of engaging and working with patients that have multiple chronic healthcare conditions. So our focus, obviously, being on chronic disease because it's over 90% of what we spend on healthcare. Wow. Okay. Now, how common is Alzheimer's disease in the U.S.? Well, right now, there's about 6 million people that have Alzheimer's, uh, progressive disease. About 2,000 people each day progress from mild to moderate Alzheimer's. But we think the projections are that it's going to grow substantially, more than double within the next 20 or 30 years to 13, 14 million people. So it's a, a significant and growing issue. Yeah, absolutely. Why do you project that kind of growth more than double? Well, I think it's in part demographics, but it's also we're doing a better job of identifying early signs of it and identifying it through imaging technologies that have evolved over the last several years. So our ability to identify the signs of early onset in particular, and then having the scanning capacity to really identify the plaque buildup in the brain you know, has been an innovation that has happened over the last several years. Okay, so up until now, what have been some of the challenges with diagnosing Alzheimer's disease early? Is it just the lack of technology? I think it's just understanding the symptoms. It could be as subtle as ongoing memory loss, issues around speech. A lot of times people just simply confuse it with the aging process, which is not part of the normal aging process. So I think that seniors and their families uh, in particular have become you know, more educated about understanding some of these symptoms. And if they do occur, to go ahead and consult with your physician to see about a, a diagnosis of whether you do have uh, early onset Alzheimer's or not. Okay. Now that's a good point to highlight before we go on. So if we have a loved one or even ourselves, if we find ourselves forgetting more often, we tend to chalk that up to, oh, it's just about getting older. Oh, it's just a senior moment. How do we know when it's worth investigating further and finding out if it might be Alzheimer's? I think if it, is, if it gets progressively worse, that if you have uh, initial memory loss, but if it seems to be getting worse over a several week or several month period, It'd be at that point in time that you should get in touch with your physician. Okay. Now, what are some of these new FDA-approved treatments? Well, we do have two new medications, the good news, that have come onto the market that have both shown to slow the progression of early onset Alzheimer's. So that's really positive. Not for, you know, obviously, for patients and their families, that keeps them out of memory loss centers and out of long-term care facilities. And it's been a real positive development. The bad news is that the, the Medicare program has decided not to pay for those medications unless the physician enrolls the patient into a clinical trial or a registry. Highly unusual, completely unprecedented. And you know, for our, our coalition, we have concern not only for the Alzheimer's community, but certainly for access to other patient populations for new drugs that may be coming down downstream in the future. Hmm. Okay, so if it's unusual and unprecedented, why is Medicare now requiring people to enroll in tests, basically, before being given access to the medication? Well, that's a good question because the FDA's already approved it. 
uh, as not only being safe and effective, but also having a clinical result that slows the buildup of plaque in the brain compared to not using the medication. So that's sort of the hallmark of dementia and, and Alzheimer's. So we've already seen a clinical benefit and that has been deemed to be approved and safe and effective. The only thing I can think of is that there is obviously an upfront cost associated with the medication. It's about $25,000, $26,000 a year. But to put that into context, you know, for a family that doesn't have access to that medication uh, and doesn't have any other treatment options, you know, putting a, a loved one into a memory loss center, well, you're going to spend that much money in two or three months. Yeah. So there was no communication from Medicare stating because of the nature of this medication for this particular instance, one time only, we're requiring patients to go through clinical studies? Pretty much, yep. And, you know, that's going to take time. You know, doing a, a clinical trial is, is time-consuming and expensive. And secondly, a, a lot of, take your state, there are a lot of seniors that don't necessarily live near a medical center, which really traditionally conducts these medical trials. So if I live in a rural part of the state, I'm really not going to have access to enrolling in a clinical trial. And as a result, really not going to have Medicare help me with the financial costs associated with medication. Yeah. Okay. Now, if I'm trying to look at the positive side of this, if someone's going through a clinical trial for a medication and they're receiving ongoing doses of the medication, does that happen on a similar time frame to if they were actually just being treated by their doctor with that medication? Yeah, pretty much. So the treatment regimens would be similar. So if, if suppose a Medicare didn't require this, you know, your physician would you know, prescribe a treatment regimen of the medication that would be, you know, exactly the same as what you would see in a, in a clinical trial. Okay. Now, are these placebo trials? So someone might end up with a placebo instead of the medication? No, they're really looking at pre and post. Okay. Um, you know, so they're doing measurements of uh, before the medication plaque buildup and then tracking, you know, how the patient is responding post-medication. The, the earlier ones that were the FDA has already done uh, a handful of studies, two or three studies that have been conducted. That was a randomized controlled trial where they were looking at patients that had the medication compared to patients who didn't. And the patients who didn't receive the medication had, there was no impact on plaque buildup, whereas the uh, patients that had the medication, there was a reduction in, in buildup. So we, we do have that data already on about 3,500 patients. Okay, so that's the type of study that happens before the FDA approves the medication. Right. Okay. So besides the inconvenience to patients, which is obvious if they have to keep going into the center, especially if they don't live near it, what other issues are there around this type of procedure? Well, I think it's it, it, the time. I mean, it's going to delay substantially the broader access to these innovative medications to the, you know, the whole population that could potentially benefit from it. And as I mentioned, obviously not not all the patients who could potentially benefit from this and who would otherwise receive it will be enrolled in a clinical trial. So there's going to be people left out. And it's going to be people that really uh, either transportation-wise or for other reasons, they don't know about it, uh, just really don't have access to enrolling in a clinical trial. What kind of expectations do you have around Medicare potentially making this type of coverage contingent on clinical studies for other medications and other medical conditions? 
Well, we're certainly concerned that Medicare could start making these coverage conditions contingent on people participating in clinical trials for other things like new cancer medications. Uh, Obviously, the administration has made reducing cancer deaths a big priority and really trying to encourage innovation in the uh, drug discovery marketplace to make that a reality. Well, I mean, that, that would kind of work counter to that goal. If uh, you have innovation in developing, let's say, new cancer drugs that do uh, reduce morbidity and mortality among cancer patients, but again, um, require patients to enroll in a clinical trial. So as noted, uh, unprecedented, and we're certainly concerned about the direction this could potentially go. Yeah. Okay. So now that the precedent has been set with the Alzheimer's medication, What is the Partnership to Fight Chronic Disease doing to try to make sure that it doesn't continue happening? Well, a couple of things. We're trying to raise awareness of it. So we have a a wealth of information on our website at pfcdatz.org. It's www.pfcdalz.org. But secondly, I I think that, you know, as patients uh, in their loved ones become aware of this, I think it would be important to make uh, members of Congress aware, to get in contact with your member of Congress and uh, the two U.S. senators there in in Nevada, just to make them aware that Medicare has gone in this direction. I I don't know that it's widely understood and known, but I think, you know, a decision with this type of consequence, you know, policymakers should be aware of it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So if you're listening and you want to help make a difference, contact members of Congress, let them know. And you can also check out the website for more information. It's pfcdalz.org. So that stands for Partnership to Fight Chronic Disease, PFCDALZ for Alzheimer's, pfcdalz.org. And you can find out more information from the Partnership to Fight Chronic Disease more information about these new clinical trials that Alzheimer's patients are being required to go through, and also some information that can help you and your family if you are facing this type of challenge. So, Dr. Thorpe, I want to thank you so much. I really appreciate you being here and letting us know more about this situation and what can be done about it and what you expect for the future. So, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Mom's early Alzheimer's diagnosis was hard to take. And when I left the oven on, we decided together that it was time to see a doctor and make a plan. Early detection gave us more time to seek out information and support as a family. If you or your family are noticing changes, it could be Alzheimer's. Talk about seeing a doctor together. For more information, visit alz.org slash time to talk. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. This is the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show. I'm Heather Vale, and I'm speaking with Richard Vague, author of the new book, The Paradox of Debt, A New Path to Prosperity Without Crisis. Richard is the author of several books, and his leadership career has spanned various fields, including banking, energy, government, and the arts. He served as Secretary of Banking and Securities for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and was previously managing partner of a venture capital company, chairman and CEO of an energy company, and co-founder and CEO of two banks. Richard, thank you so much for being here today. It's such a privilege to be with you. Thanks. So what prompted you to write this book, The Paradox of Debt? 
Well, we first started diving deeply into this after the global financial crisis of 08 and came to the realization that most economic theory omitted consideration of debt. That's why they missed the 08 crisis to begin with. And as we've continued that pursuit, we've had a series of books, and this is the culmination of our work. Okay, so what exactly is the paradox that you're talking about in the paradox of debt? Well, debt is the creator and the destroyer. You know, debt is something that is absolutely necessary for economic growth. You know, if you want to build a new factory or shopping center or a new home, you know, almost always debt is the mechanism for doing that. So it's an indispensable part of growth, but debt can bring calamity. It can bring calamity at a personal level. It can bring calamity for an economy, as we saw in 08, where $5 trillion worth of reckless mortgages brought calamity. So it does both, and it is responsible for both often at the same time. Is that an ideal scenario, or would it be better that it's not both the creator and the destroyer at the same time? Well, I think it's a question of how you approach and manage it. I think it's, you know, not just for an individual, but for a society. It's what you do, how you use that debt, how you manage that debt. For example, you know, in 2002, there were only $5 trillion in mortgage loans. By the time you got to 2007, just about four and a half years later, it had doubled to $10 trillion. And so many of those, as we recall, were loans made without checking income or asset or jobs. They were completely irresponsible. And it was very easy to see. I mean, it's impossible to miss $5 trillion worth of growth in a four and a half year period. But somehow the economics profession absolutely did miss that. So responsible oversight in that situation would have saved, you know, anguish for millions and millions of households. Okay, now that's a really obvious example how debt was not necessarily approached and managed in the best way. So let's bring it back to current times. What's the current state of debt? How are we currently approaching and managing it? And are we on the right track or not? Well, in the United States, debt has actually been reasonably benign. But we look at the seven major economies in the world and China is a place where debt is, has been out of control for the last decade. And they are starting to have many problems that are going to spill over, certainly within Asia and in some respects to the rest of the world. We saw the Evergrande debacle last year. That's being followed by dozens and dozens of other real estate collapses within China. So and if we look at the United States, things are in a reasonable place, but not globally. Okay. Now, when you talk about the paradox of debt, with debt being both the creator and the destroyer, and how it's required for growth, but also can bring destruction at the same time, it sounds like there's a balance. There's a tipping point where it's too much debt or not enough debt. So how much debt do we currently have in terms of it being too much to handle? Well, I want to talk about it in two different ways. One of them is how quickly that debt comes. And that's what can bring crisis. So if you have great growth in debt in a very compressed period of time, call it three to five years, 
that brings a crisis. And it's not just 08. We had crises within smaller sectors of the economy. We had a crisis in the energy sector in 2016 because of a run-up in debt for exploration. There was great anguish there, but that's a relatively small sector of the economy. In our book, we go in and actually prescribe mathematical ways of detecting runaway debt growth. That's one thing. But the other thing is just, whether fast or slow, it's just the insidious side effect of the accumulation of debt over time. So in the United States, as an important example, private sector debt in right after World War II was only 35% of GDP. Today, it's 160% of GDP. And if you just compare the debt service ratio, the amount of our income we have to use to pay interest and principal on our debt, for most households, that's gone from about 15% of their income to 25 to 28% of their income. So today, more of our income has to go to service debt, and that makes economic growth slower. That's one of kind of the to use the word again, insidious side effects of the accumulation of debt through time. So in a nutshell, when the government has debt on a national level, how does that affect us, the little people? Well, that's a very important question. And I, we go to great lengths in the book to show that private debt and government debt are two different things. And frankly, there's more private sector debt than government debt. Right now, there's about $40 trillion in household and business debt, what we call private sector debt, versus $30 trillion worth of government debt. And government debt has an ironic effect that most folks aren't aware of, certainly most policymakers aren't aware of. And that is when the government spends money, it doesn't disappear. It goes into household checking accounts. So in the three years of the pandemic is one very notable example. Government debt increased by $8 trillion, you know, the most it had ever increased in history. Household wealth in that same three-year period increased by $30 trillion. And that was a result of two things. One is the $8 trillion the government spent went into household bank accounts. The second thing that happened is the flood of money from the government pushed up real estate and stock market values by, you know, roughly $20 trillion. So households became much wealthier. Now, the unfortunate footnote there is most of that went to the top 10% of households. Almost none of that stayed in the checking accounts of the middle class. Okay. Now, you mentioned that the U.S. is not as much in crisis right now as other countries, for example, China. So how does our model of dealing with debt compare to other countries? Well, I don't think anyone has a really successful model for dealing with the accumulation of debt. And I want to preface that by saying debt increases in relation to the economy in every country in the world. We track the top seven in this book, which, by the way, seven countries by themselves constitute 65% of world GDP. You know, there's 200 countries, but seven of them constitute two-thirds of the world. So if you study those seven, you really have a clear picture of the world. 
Now, every single one of those seven debt has increased significantly during this period. And there are really very few mechanisms for dealing with it. Bankruptcy is one, but as you know, we have very onerous, strict bankruptcy laws in the United States, which by the way, in the book we discuss and talk about maybe a little less punitive, more restorative way of managing through bankruptcy. We think there ought to be creative ways for us to deal with other forms of debt. And student debt now touches 43 million Americans. And it's not just 20 and 30-year-olds, it's 60 and 70-year-olds. And it's, it's a struggle that's weighing down the economy. We are in favor of blanket forgiveness, but we do think there's creativity that could be brought to bear, such as community service. You know, you can get relief from student debt by service in the military, service in something like the Peace Corps. How about just other types of community service as a way to kind of bring earlier relief from student debt payments? So we, we try to get into new ways of thinking about debt relief. Okay, so those are some strategies that the country could use to manage debt. What about us? What can we do on a personal level, on an individual level to help change the outcome? You know, I think it boils down to some of the old fashioned principles that are tried and true. You know, first and foremost is financial discipline. You know, we think that debt can be used to good effect in the case of a mortgage. You know, particularly if you make sure you're buying at a reasonable price and you're not buying in the middle of a boom where you're overpaying, as I think many people did in 21 during kind of the COVID boom, and certainly many did in 05 and 06. But if you're, if you're buying at a reasonable time at a reasonable price, mortgage debt can be very productive for a household. We think folks should shy away from borrowing for spending. So borrowing for a vacation, borrowing for uh, things where it's just money out the door, that's an area where households should be disciplined. Okay. So this is obviously a really complicated topic, and you've written a great book that goes into depth in many areas that people could get into and understand on a much broader and deeper level. So where could people go if they want to find out more about this topic and buy the book, The Paradox of Debt, A New Path to Prosperity Without Crisis? Well, thank you for asking. They can obviously go to the great places like Barnes and Noble and Amazon, particularly online. And we have a website, paradoxofdebt.com, which gets into the book and some of the other things we've done. So we, if, if you have an interest in macroeconomics and how you know the economy affects the country as a whole, we strongly recommend you read the book. Okay, nice. So paradoxofdebt.com is the website, paradoxofdebt.com. And you can also buy the book, which is called The Paradox of Debt, A New Path to Prosperity Without Crisis at all the major booksellers, including Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and anywhere else that you like to get your books. And once again, the website, paradoxofdebt.com. And Richard, I want to thank you so much for being here and giving us more information about the big picture, how we can deal with it, and some strategies that could happen on a larger scale as well. So I really appreciate your time and your expertise. Thank you. I'm grateful. Thank you. Retirement can be scary, but only if you're not prepared. 
That's why AARP created thisispretirement.org. Because unless you've already retired, you're in pretirement and you still have time to plan. Learn about retirement savings options, potential tax breaks, and how you can build savings over time. Visit thisispretirement.org for free resources to help you customize your action plan and feel the retirement fear disappear. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. I'm Heather Vale with the Odyssey Las Vegas Public Affairs Show, and this is your community events calendar for nonprofit initiatives and charity events around the valley. The College of Southern Nevada, or CSN, is starting their spring classes on Tuesday, January 16th, with late registration from January 17th to 22nd. They offer a mix of online and in-person classes, and CSN was just named one of America's top online colleges by Newsweek. Check out all their certificates, associate degrees, and bachelor degree programs at csn.edu. That's csn.edu. Vegas Strongers holding their Polar Plunge Challenge on Thursday, January 18th from 11.30 a.m. to 1 p.m. at Vegas Stronger, 916 North Main Street, south of Washington. They also have opportunities to get involved by volunteering, holding a hygiene drive or food drive, or handing out golden tickets. Find out more or make a donation at VegasStronger.org. That's VegasStronger.org. And Monday's Dark with Mark Chinook is a bi-monthly musical fundraising party at The Space, with each event raising $10,000 for a specific charity in 90 minutes. Upcoming shows include Monday, January 22nd at 8 p.m., benefiting Free International, and Monday, February 5th at 8 p.m., benefiting ALS of Southern Nevada. Get tickets or find out more details at mondaysdark.com. That's mondaysdark.com. in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 